I am uh, running last leg here, okay? I have the privilege of preaching the fourth of uh, this four-part series. Pastor Roger asked if Brett and Brad and I would jump in and tag team on this series, so it's been a great time for all of us to be able to join in with that. But I want to kind of go over what we've been talking about here. You guys know the song. We've been singing it for close to a year now. The first part, and the part that I'm going to cover today, is you turn mourning to dancing, you give beauty for ashes, you turn shame into glory, you are the only one who can. Everybody look at that last line. You are the only one who can. That's the main thing we need to remember from this. Amen? Then let's look at the next slide, and this is what Roger and Brad and Brett covered. The third line down, you turn seas into highways, was the first part. That was Brett two weeks ago, uh, or three weeks ago, actually. Two weeks ago, Brad covered you turn bones into armies. And then last week on Easter Sunday, Roger preached you turn graves into gardens. So I want you to know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that we are blessed. Brad and Brett are, are two of the greatest young preachers anywhere in this state. And we are so blessed to have them. Yeah, let's give the Lord a hand for them. And I don't want to embarrass Roger in any way, but I told him last week after the message, that was one of the best messages I have ever heard in my life. And I'm not saying one of the best messages that I've heard Roger preach. That would be saying something because he's a great preacher. But literally one of the top handful of messages I've ever heard. If you miss that, get online and watch it because it was all about the resurrection and all about graves in the gardens and it was uh, it was a, just an incredible incredible message so uh, I have Tourette's you all know that uh, you've probably seen me twitch you might have guessed it if you didn't hear me say that before but it has really stepped up its game in the last week or so so if you see me twitching a lot this morning uh, don't think I'm stroking out just want to forewarn you okay and I'll make this deal with you if you don't laugh at my face I won't laugh at Roger's face and that's a pretty big deal okay you can laugh at Roger's face, but I won't today, okay, as long as you don't laugh at mine. So, but I do, do want to warn you uh, that you might see me twitching a little more than normal. So, again, my role this morning is to be able to talk to you about uh, turn mourning into dancing, beauty for ashes, and shame into glory. And I want to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14. We're going to read verses 3 through 9. I'll say that again, Mark chapter 14. Verses 3 through 9, one more time, Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. We're going to look at two different characters here that, man, if there's ever a story of mourning into dancing, beauty for ashes, shame to glory, it's these two characters in the Bible. And I just want to be able to examine them. I want to look at the first character and the second character is where we're going to camp out because I really want to examine her worship, okay, more than anything, and the style of worship that she exhibited that day uh, uh, to Jesus. So I, I want you to understand something, though. As, as we walk through this, I, I did not know my assignment of this series. Uh, well, I, I actually found out my assignment of this series, if I remember correctly, before I realized that on the 7th day of January of this year, our Hannah, a 19-year-old with Down syndrome, was going to be diagnosed with acute leukemia. And after we found out she had acute leukemia, I'm going, God, can I do, you know, season to highways? Will you give me another role other than this particular role? And I know that he is really saying, no, this is what you need to share today. But I just need to clear the air with something. I want to be describing someone's worship. And I am in no way saying that I worship that way. I can tell you this, in the last two and a half months, we have worship. We found ourselves in this type of worship. But for me, it took a crisis in my life to drive me to that. And the question that I have for myself and that God's been dealing with me about is two things. Number one, why don't I worship him that way when everything seems to be going good? And I wonder if we could come to, to grips with that today as his children. 
Why don't we worship him whenever things are going good, not just on the days that, that things are falling apart around us. The second thing I have to ask is, now that I am worshiping him, kind of in the style that we're going to talk about this morning, or, or the components, if you would, uh, why am I doing it? I have to ask myself that question. Am I doing it because I'm hoping if I do so, God's going to let us hang on to our daughter here on earth? Or am I doing it because he's worthy? And I think we have to ask that question. And so just know as we walk through this, I've not, I've not arrived in the area of worship, not in any way, shape, or form. Uh, matter of fact, it's really showed my weaknesses. But let's, let's study these two characters here, and we're going to read Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 3, and this is what it says. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came in uh, with an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. And there were some in, the, in there that were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And, wherever you, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Let's pray. Father, again, we say the same thing we said in the first two services. God, I, I just desperately, desperately need you. And Lord, I, even on the way here this morning, as the, the dots were just not connected in my mind. Um, I just want to publicly say to you again, forgive me for the days that I am preaching and I feel like the dots are connected in my mind. Lord, we are desperately in need of you to move our hearts. We are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit to move us in the direction. And God, I need that in my life. Move us today where you want us to be. And God, again, we'll be careful to give you every bit of the credit. We ask it all again in the strong name of our King Jesus. Amen. Well, the first character is a guy named Simon the leper, okay? Uh, Jesus is with his disciples. He's in Bethany. This is about two days prior to the crucifixion events. And he's, been, uh, he's in the home of Simon the leper for this great meal. And Simon the leper is the host. Now, that may seem a little unusual. We know that Simon the leper could not have been the host unless Jesus had first healed Simon the leper. As a matter of fact, because Jesus healed Simon the leper, all of a sudden, he is having this party in his house. I want you just to wrap your mind around that because it's hard for me to wrap my mind around it but listen to this for several decades of Simon the leper's life he I promise you was exiled for several decades Simon the leper had to live in a special colony only for people with leprosy for several decades Simon the leper had no human touch imagine that zero human touch for several decades Simon the leper had the shame of every time he would walk into a crowd of people the marketplace or wherever he was he had to yell unclean unclean and people would scatter and children would run in fear Simon the leper had poverty second to none because there were no jobs for people with with uh, with leprosy Simon the leper had the greatest poverty of all and that's loneliness because he was completely exiled completely separated completely cut off from all of mankind but now Simon the leper is hosting a party and I'm wondering why did he still go by Simon the leper why was that still his name 
And I believe the reason why is because people would come up and say, who are you? And he'd say, Simon the leper. And they'd say, you don't have leprosy. And he'd say, yeah, let me tell you why. And he could point them to Jesus. So now can you picture this guy who had gone through that for maybe a couple of decades. Suddenly, I see him hugging everybody that walks in his door. I see him being thrilled that maybe even he got to prepare some of the food with his clean hands that was being served that day. Simon the leper suddenly was the host to Jesus and his disciples, and that's the, di- the, the difference Jesus makes. You talk about mourning to dancing. You talk about beauty for ashes. You talk about shame into glory. That's the, di- the, di- the difference that Jesus makes. Then the second character enters into the room. Into the house of Simon the leper, a woman walks in. Now, some people think this is the same story that's recorded over in John 12, 1, beginning in verse 1, and maybe it is. I, I, don't, I don't think it is, personally. A lot of scholars that are a lot smarter than me say it's one and the same, but there are some differences there, okay? It is a house in John chapter 12, verse 1, in Bethany. It doesn't really name whose house it is. Martha's preparing the meal, and it identifies Mary as a woman that's coming in to actually do this incredible act of worship, okay? But she pours the same kind of oil on his feet, where in this the woman that's unnamed pours it on her head I personally believe it's a different setting another reason why I say that is in John chapter 12 verse 1 it says it was six days prior to the Passover if you read what happens right after this they're stepping into about a two day time frame if that before the crucifixion uh, crucifixion events even begin so I believe it's two separate events personally in my own life regardless of what we think there it's not who it was that matters it was what she was doing that matters and I want us to examine this morning this radical radical passionate worship that this lady exhibited on Jesus and I believe that it's this kind of worship that brings us to beauty it's this kind of worship that brings us to glory it's this kind of worship that produces the dancing whenever we are this radical about the Lord okay so again I can't stress it enough I I don't worship this way when things are good I pray I do in the future but I have the tendency to begin to worship this way whenever things are, are tough in difficult seasons of my life. But listen to how radical this woman was. First of all, I say it was radical worship because of what she was carrying. We've already talked about it. It was a flask uh, that, was, that contained spikenard. It's called, it's really pure nard. It's a, it's a perfume, a very, aroma, very expensive perfume that came from a plant in India. I can't imagine how much it would cost us to get it shipped from India over to where they were, let alone the, the value of the perfume itself. And she was carrying it even in this alabaster flask, which is kind of a part, kind of a unique soft marble and, and, and a part wood. Even that in and of itself, the container was of value. But this woman was carrying something that later on we see whenever the disciples are criticizing her, they mention that it was worth over 300 denarii and a denarii is was one day's wage back in that day so over 300 days wages close to a year's wages is what was in this a year's salary was in this box and she was carrying something of that great value but not only do I say it was radical worship because it was of such great value monetarily but this was much more than about the money this was about her life Historians tell us that this would have been this woman's dowry. If she ever wanted to have a shot of getting married, she needed a dowry such as this. Matter of fact, a dowry this great was a sure thing. She would have been able to get married. She didn't care about that. All she wanted to do was just get to Jesus. That mattered. No matter how shallow the culture was back then, of needing a nice dowry to be able to get married, it, it was in that day the situation. But man, she said, I don't care about my future. I don't care about getting married. I don't care about any of this. Just get me to Jesus. And she brought this thing of value. And I want you to know we're going to find ourselves in seasons of our life that we are carrying something of incredible value that's all about our life. 
and we're carrying it to Jesus. And that's what this woman's doing. But she does something else. Another reason why I say it's a radical, radical, passionate act of worship is because the Bible says she broke the flask. It indicates she shattered it. And here's the thing that we need to understand. Whenever you break something, she wasn't planning on keeping some of it in the bottle. Whatever comes out of a broken bottle, you don't put back in. I think in one part she shattered it so she could get it out as fast as possible because she just wanted to pour it on the head of Jesus as quickly as she possibly can. But I'm telling you, when you break it, it's all or nothing. You see, in my life, I love to be able to open something because if you open something, you can close it. When you break something, you can't put it back in and you cannot close it. I'm telling you, I'm in a setting right now, our family, where we so passionately want to be able to close it. We want to be able to put the lid back on it, but sometimes we find ourselves in settings where it just can't happen. I'm telling you what's going to happen is it's going to be broken, it's going to come out, and you can't put it back in. I don't care how hard you try and how hard you want it to happen that way, it just doesn't happen. And I believe we, many times in North America, love to open stuff. Think if this woman would have opened this flask, not broke it, poured half of it out, a half a year's salary, and that would have been incredible, but not her. It was all or nothing. And we find ourselves in seasons where we go, man, no matter how much we wish we could close it, it's not going to happen. And this woman worshipped in that kind of radical, passionate setting. Now, why don't I worship that way when the days are good? Another reason why I say there was such a radical act of worship was because back to the breaking of that bottle, whenever you shatter something, something, whatever comes out is uncontrollable. I love to be in control. But here's what I found out. I don't think I've ever been in control of anything. I think it's pretty nice God to make me think, allow me to think that I am every once in a while. But I just realized I'm in a setting where I can't fix it. I can't stop it. I am completely 100% out of control. And I'm beginning to realize that if I think I'm any more in control whenever I'm going to Walmart to get a loaf of bread, I'm delusional. And we all are. But I wonder in those days that things are going good, if we worship God in a way of saying, God, we are out of control. And we recognize that, and it doesn't take a crisis for us to recognize it. Now, I want you to hear this. God doesn't send the ashes. God is not the ash bringer. He's the one that finds beauty in the ashes. And we have the tendency, whenever something happens like this, to blame who? God. Doesn't he get a bad rap? It's always God's fault whenever we got a real live enemy out there, whenever we have this thing called original sin. And by the way, if any one of us were the ones in the Garden of Eden, we would have screwed up too. Do we know that? Regardless, I'd hate to think what the original sin would be recorded as if I was the one in the garden. I think it'd be worse than eating a piece of fruit. I don't even like fruit. You can tell by the weight I got on my stomach here. I don't know. No telling what. The original sin. Don't talk about that one. Caldwell really blew it in a big way. We all would have messed it up. But because of sin, once sin came into the picture, this thing called death was introduced for the first time. The Bible says it's appointed a man wants to die. We're begging God to hang on to our little princess for a long, long time. But what happens, what comes with death is disease and illness. Usually death doesn't come at age 93 dying in your sleep peacefully. There's all kinds of other things that circle around it. And so we have the tendency to say, God, why did you do this? But God's not the one that brings the ashes. He's the one that brings the beauty if we worship him. And if we worship him, can you imagine if we worship him the way this lady did when things were good? Because every one of us are headed for a crisis. Seems a little depressing, right? But either we're coming out of a storm, we're in a storm, or we're getting ready to hit a storm. 
It's called life on this filthy, wicked, broken planet that we broke. And one day Jesus is going to come back and fix it, but it's not time yet. And until then, there's disease and there's illness and there's heartache. But this woman was carrying the most valuable thing she had, life. She brought to Jesus and broke it because she realized that regardless, it was all or nothing. She can't put it back in. And she shattered it in a way to say, I'm out of control. You're the one in control. And I wonder today if I'll make a fresh commitment to him to worship him in that way. Because I want to tell you what that worship brings. That type of worship brings this. It changes the environment around us. It changes the environment around us. Here's what I mean by that. This fragrant oil was so strong, I will promise you whenever she shattered that box, that room, I don't know how big the, the living room was of Simon the leper, but that room, every nook and cranny and corner was filled, was overrun with this fragrance. Matter of fact, I think some of the disciples smelled it before they saw it. Maybe their back was turned to the situation, didn't know what was going on, they were having a conversation, and suddenly they smelt this incredible aroma, and they turned around and noticed what was going on before they began to criticize her. But it changes, this type of worship changes the environment around us. I want to give you some examples. I've had a couple people come up to me and say, hey, we appreciate the way you continue to share Jesus, even in the middle of this crisis, but I need to tell you something. I'm, I'm not sharing Jesus. Jesus is sharing Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. Every time somebody walks into our hospital room, I don't say, can I tell you about Jesus? But I can't tell you the amount of people that's walked into the hospital room, pulled me off to the side or Joy off to the side and said, can we talk? Jesus is doing this. I wish I could tell you that I'm in there going, whoo-hoo, let me tell you about Jesus. But I can tell you that God is doing what he does best. How in the world does a young doctor see my Bible? We had no conversation about the Lord. He just saw my Bible sitting on the windowsill. He went to Hannah's chart, got my cell number, and texted me the next day and said, if I arrange a room on your hall, can we meet? I have some questions. How in the world can a person yesterday that, that uh, it delivers our food say, here's what's going on with my family and my husband and myself and some death and some things is going on and someone that was just murdered in their family and to be able to pray with them. How does it happen that nurses, including a new one yesterday, came up and said can we get your cell phone number and, and it's not because we're special I'm not saying that at all I'm saying because whenever you find yourself in a setting where you're forced to carry the most valuable thing you've got where you're forced to realize that you've got to give it all up and you can't put it back in and you can't close the bottle as much as you want to and when you're forced to realize you are out of control it changes the environment around you because that fragrance goes and it's God showing off and he does it in the, in the best way and again, I wish I could tell you as one of your pastors that I'm the one that, I'm, I'm opening my mouth everywhere I go. No, I can barely even open my mouth at all. But I'm being forced to open my mouth because God's sending people to say, I need to talk. And it changes the environment around us. If we worship this way on good days and bad, wouldn't it be incredible? Wouldn't it be amazing to think about how God would continue to change the environment around us in every way. The list goes on and on of people that God has sent our way. So this woman did this radical act of worship, and if that's not cool enough, she did it, get this, in the house of Simon the leper. You want to talk about beauty from ashes. God doesn't send the ashes, but if, we're, if we hang on to him, man, he'll bring the beauty. 
He is the God that brings beauty. So let's look at the disciples' responses. The disciples have been hanging out with Jesus now for the better part of three years. They'd seen everything. And let's look at what their response is. It says in verses 4 and 5 that they were indignant. That's the disciples. That word means offended. Offended. They said, why was it wasted on his head? They said, we could have sold it for... You know, almost a year's salary and giving it to the poor. And Jesus knew that they were entitled. They weren't wanting to take care of the poor. And the reason why we know that is because he got on to them for it. He corrected them for it. He wouldn't have corrected them if it really was a good heart. But they didn't have a right heart. And he always knew that. And that's why he said, hit the brakes. Leave her alone. They didn't give a rip. But they felt entitled as disciples. And here's why I say that. They criticized her sharply. See, there was a time that the disciples would have been the ones with face to the floor. There's a time, the moment Jesus walked into a room, they would have been the ones doing the radical act of worship. But I think what happened was the disciples had gotten used to Jesus. They'd gotten used to the miracles. They'd gotten used to the teachings. They'd gotten used to the multitudes. And now Jesus is in the house, and it's no big deal. He's just one of the boys. And this woman came in and did this radical thing. It changed the environment of the room. And they were entitled. They criticized her. They made excuses. And I want to tell you something. As Christians, we've got to ask ourselves the question have we gotten used to Jesus? Because especially when a crisis hits, here's what we can say if we're not careful. Why us? We serve you. We're your children. Why? Uh, and, do, do we understand? I, there's only one thing I deserve in this world, and that's hell. God is in the center of the, of the illness. He doesn't cause children to have leukemia, but He's the one that will turn it into something beautiful if you just allow Him. And we're, we're, I'm not saying we're there yet. And I wish we would have had this ability before we even got into this setting. I'm without excuse not to be this kind of worshiper all the time. But I can tell you, he's the one that takes the ashes that is thrown at us and turns them into beauty. And if we ever get to the setting that we go, why us? This isn't fair. Then we're doing what the disciples are doing. We're entitled feel like we ought to have some kind of special treatment. Why? Because I'm holy and you don't know it, but I got angel wings underneath this shirt. And if you don't knew the wickedness of this guy's heart, I'm not proud of that. I know where to take every thought under captivity and give it to the Lord, but there are days I choose not to. And even though he gives me the way out, I choose not to. And so I ask you this question. Have you gotten used to Jesus? How, would, how do we respond in these kind of settings? Now, I want to talk about a, just a, a couple of practical applications here. Some things that I feel like we need to talk about. Because my greatest fear is that as I talk about this woman who did this great act of worship, carrying the, the most valuable thing, and, and knowing she can't close it, and knowing she's out of control, and she's still worshiping, changing the environment around, I don't want to give you the, the impression that I'm saying, in every setting, we should always be, whoo Jesus! Not at all. Matter of fact, the first practical application is this. 
we need to understand. We need to always be honest with the season we're in. If we're in a bad season, admit it. It's okay. God is so big, we can throw up anger and all kinds of stuff on him, and he's got these broad shoulders that can handle it. He already knows what's in our heart and our mind. We don't need to get stuck in that. But I'm telling you, it's okay. He understands what it's like to have a child suffering. He understands the death of a child. He understands separation from a child. There's not any emotion that any one of us can ever have that he cannot connect to and identify with. So it's okay. Don't, don't run in denial and do the, if we just have enough faith, we better stay up because we love Jesus and there must be something wrong with us if we're not going, oh, Jesus, Jesus. No, it's okay. Get mad. It's all right. Be honest where you are. I was in Denver, Colorado with a pastor. He was 78 years old at the time, and we were doing some ministry, and we'd gotten there early. I know, unusual for me, but he was driving. And we'd gotten there early, and we were waiting for another group of people, the rest of the team, to show up, so we were going to do this ministry in this, in this apartment complex. And he, 78-year-old guy, and, and I'll never forget him looking at me saying, I, I didn't know him yet. He said, I've been divorced. I've seen divorce happen to a lot better people than me. But at first I wondered why he said that, and then I realized why he wanted to teach me something. He said, my wife, my current wife is my second wife. And he said, do you know why I got divorced? I said, no. He said, because my first wife and I had a daughter, and whenever she was 16 years old, she was in a car wreck, and, it, and she died. And I thought my role as a pastor was to just go, God's good. Everything's great. Had to stay up. Had to stay up in front of my people. Had to stay up in front of the church. Had to stay up in front of my family. Had to just keep pumping my fist in there. Whew, God's good. And he said, the whole time my wife was dying inside. And I didn't allow her to grieve. And I didn't grieve with her. And she left me. So what he was trying to do to a guy that was a little younger than him was say, whatever you do, stay honest in the season you're in. It's okay whenever you come across a season that you want to just scream at God. He's a faithful God. Don't get stuck in it because I'm telling you, he's not the bringer of the ashes. He's the bringer of the beauty, but it's okay, and we gotta be honest. Second practical application, why do these things happen? I don't get it, but the only thing I can say is this. The greatest thing that God has ever given men and women, boys and girls, is this thing called love. Now, the perfect love that he gives is amazing. It's our only way to heaven. We know that. But humanistically, still, the greatest thing that he's given me on earth is my wife loving me. We've been married almost 28 years, and she loves me. She knows my worst thing. She's seen me at my absolute worst, and she loves me. And you know what makes it so incredible? She doesn't have to love me. She's not a robot. Nobody's forcing her to love me. The thing that makes love, love, is that someone can turn away and leave it, and they choose to stay. That's passionate. That is incredible. But we can't have it both ways. See, if it was robotic love, we wouldn't even know what love was. If we were forced to always do the right thing, if we were forced to never run, and, and, and if someone has, has walked you through the agony of leaving you, I am so sorry and I can't imagine that heartache and it was dead wrong of them to do it. But with the same freedom that God has given a filthy, wicked, hell-bound guy like me 
to be able to surrender to a perfect love and be able to know I'm forgiven and go to heaven, that same freedom you and I have to embrace Jesus, other people have to run away from it and murder and do harm and do ill and break up relationships and all kinds of stuff. We can't have it both ways. If we want love, then the other side of the coin has to be there. And it can be brutal. You may say, well, Bob, that, that makes a little bit of sense as far as uh, leaving someone or harming someone. Or, but still, why do children get cancer? And I've got an answer for you. I don't know. I can't figure it out. I do know the moment sin came into the world, death came into the world. I, I don't know why at that age at what seems like a little more of an innocent stage. But I can promise you this, and I can promise you this. If we don't run from Jesus, if we run to Jesus, he'll take a knee beside you. I can't tell you the times in the darkest seasons of the last two and a half months that he's taken a knee beside me. And he's always there. I can put my head on his shoulder anytime. And he's the one that so desires to bring the beauty. We can't blame him for bringing the ashes. He didn't bring them. We're in this broken, busted up, wicked world. But I'm telling you, he will bring the beauty. He's there. And he shows up everywhere. I think one of the reasons why we have a hard time grasping that, at least I do, is because of these things right here, okay? Let me tell you what this is. These are replicas. This story I'm getting ready to tell you meant so much, and I lost the original, so I had somebody make them, and they, I'm telling you, they made almost exact replicas. So, Joy and the kids and I, years ago, were in Houston, Texas doing ministry. It was late March, and we decided to take the kids to Six Flags. Hannah was probably about a year and a half, maybe two years old. She was just crawling pretty good. Uh, you know, she had a, a delay. She got a learning delay with Down syndrome. She didn't crawl, crawl quite as quick as the other kids. But Noah wasn't in the picture yet, our youngest. So it was, it was years, years ago. So we had four under the age of five or maybe six. God bless my wife. And... Uh, and we went to Six Flags. Now, it's, it's Houston. It's late March, so the temps are getting into the low, low 90s. They have humidity there, much like St. Louis. And just like Six Flags right here, it's blacktop everywhere, okay? So it is one hot day. And about 15 minutes inside the gate, 15 minutes into the day, we walk through this little game area, and there's this massive scorpion that could be one, a stuffed animal, the biggest stuffed animal I've ever seen in my life, okay? It was massive. And the kids said, Dad, win that stuffed animal. And I'm looking to see what people are doing, and you have to shoot this little gun that's got this little cork thing coming out of it, and sometimes it goes this way, and sometimes... There's no, there's no skill to this at all, none. It's just close your eyes, pull the trigger, see what happens, because you have to knock these three things, not just down, but off the pedestal. So I'm going, I'll play the game once, because I, there's no way I'm going to win. Played it once. Guess what? I won the scorpion. <laughs> it was over seven feet long. These were its eyeballs. Are you catching me? <laughs> eyeballs. This thing was neon, had hair on it, that I'm telling you, I think it was sweating. It got so hot. 
So 15 days into a long day in Houston, Texas of 90 degree heat with humidity on blacktop, I start the day with this scorpion that literally, if you, un, you know, uncurl the tail, is over seven feet long. I've never seen anything like it in my life, and it is shedding all over me, and I'm sweating on it, it's sweating on me, and one of the kids would start to fall down, and I would turn and knock a little old lady in the head with the tail of the scorpion, and I'd turn around to apologize and hit somebody else. It was brutal. Finally, about an hour into it, I'm going, hand is crawling I don't care get her out of the wagon the scorpion's going in the wagon I wasn't quite that brutal kind of but anyhow the scorpion goes in the wagon we would get on these little carousels and stuff and we would park the wagon way around the corner just hoping someone would steal the scorpion okay they could have taken the wagon it would have been fine with us nobody was dumb enough to steal the scorpion about midday it sprung a leak and it had the little white beads in it. Why, who in the world stuffs an animal with little white beads? If a serial killer was looking for our family, we were dead meat because we left a trail all over that park. At the end of the day, after it sweat all over me and I had neon glowing hair all over my body, we get it out to the van. We vacuumed white beads the next six months out of the van. We put it in a trailer we were pulling those days and hauled it all the way back to Missouri at the end of that ministry in Houston. And we vacuumed beads all over the house. I say we pretty loosely there but I'm just telling you finally it drained dry and I had somebody cut the eyeballs out because I didn't want to forget that scorpion but there's been multiple times in my life that I've had these or the originals setting in my I lost the originals leave it to me setting in my office on a shelf just this right here and people would come in to me and say hey Bob hey you know, they'd always stare at the, at the eyeballs. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I'd be having, and 15 minutes later, they'd still be saying, yeah, so Joy and the kids are good. And they'd still be staring at the eyeballs. And it didn't make sense to them. Why in the world these eyeballs were there? But I want you to know that every time I looked at those two little eyeballs, or big eyeballs peering at me, I remembered the entire experience. And it always brings a smile to my face. And here's why I think we have a hard time with bad seasons because all we can see is this and God sees the whole picture and what we end up saying is why that doesn't make sense this is not fair and all these saints can cross our mind but I'm telling you we have a God that really even though he didn't bring the illness he sees a picture. And he's a God that brings beauty to ashes. He's a God that brings dancing from mourning. If, if we just hang on to him and run to him, he will never let us go. I might be reading too much into this text, but I just have to wonder. You see, within 48 hours, Jesus is starting the crucifixion events. They're beating him with a cat of nine tails. They're shoving a crown of thorn over his brow. They're getting ready to nail him to a cross. And you know, I just can't help but wonder, back in this day, this was a day that you didn't shower twice a day. I think even if you could have, I'm not sure you could have ever gotten this rich of spikenard off of your body. I think the fragrance was still there. And I just have to wonder, whenever they were whipping him with the cat of nine tails and his hair slung into his face whenever he was in agony and pain if he didn't smell that fragrance and think 
somebody worshiped me. Whenever he was carrying the cross and he fell beneath the load of the cross and everything jolted, I just can't, I just have to wonder if he smelled that fragrance and thought somebody worshiped me. Maybe even while hanging on the cross, whenever the wind would shift, suddenly that would come across his nostrils. And he would think somebody worshiped me. Can you imagine being able to worship that way? Worship him because he's worthy, not because of something we want out of him, not because of self glory, but worship him because he's worthy. The story ends with Jesus saying to the disciples, leave her alone. She's done a good thing here. She's done everything she could possibly do to prepare my body for burial. I'm convinced nobody in the room understood what he was saying, especially the woman that was worshiping. But Jesus knew. But then he says this incredible statement. I'm telling you, everywhere this gospel is preached in the entire world, this story of this woman will be told as a memorial to her. And you know what's crazy about that? It's 2,021 years later, and we are on the other hemisphere talking about her. And you know why that is? Because the Bible is truth. If it says it, it's going to happen. The greatest story of beauty for ashes is actually found in Isaiah 61. I almost came out of that passage, but I knew the Lord led me this direction. But it's really where the song comes from. But it's talking there about salvation. And as I close, let me just tell you, there might be someone or maybe multiple someones in this room saying, you know, I'm not 100% sure that if I died tonight that I would go to heaven. I'm not sure that I really have that nailed down. Maybe you think you're kind of working on it, you're on your way, we're so glad you're here and we're proud of you for, for being that being that way. Uh, but, but I'm going to tell you, here's how we can trade the, get the, the greatest beauty for ashes. The Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would live forever, would have eternal life. And that verse simply means God has a plan and a purpose for every person in this room. His plan, his purpose is that one day when we die, our physical body, uh, you know, it's buried in the ground. But I'm telling you, our soul, our inner being, our thought life, what really makes us tick, goes on to live forever and ever and ever. And he wants it with him in heaven. He wants us in heaven even more so we want to get there. He's in your corner. He's on your side. He's head over heels in love with you on your worst day. Maybe you've been taught a different view of God than that, but I'm telling you, the biblical God is he's head over heels in love with you. So he wants us in heaven. That's good news. With the good news comes some bad news. Bad news is we can't go. We have to go to hell. Because the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We talked about it a couple times. The moment sin came into the picture, sin separates us from God. He's so holy, so perfect, so clean. And how else would he be? I mean, he's God. He's so incredibly clean. What I view as the least of my sin is so drastically different from how clean he is, it separates me completely. In my strength, I have to go to hell. I can't become religious enough. 
I can't become, help enough little ladies across the street, give enough money to the poor. No matter what I try to do, it'll never balance out the wickedness of my life. I'm sunk, and we all are. We have to go to hell. But with that news comes the best news. God said, you are sunk, and you're helpless, and you're hopeless, so I'm going to rescue you. And I'm not going to ask you to meet me halfway or 1% of the way. I'm going to come full on to you and rescue you. And he says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, he sent Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin, walked this earth 33 years, 100% God, yet 100% man. I was 24 years old before I embraced this, and I'm telling you, those two things were hurdles. Many of you heard me say this before. How does a virgin have a baby, and how do you have 100% God, yet 100% man? So I had to ask two fundamental questions. Question number one, do I believe in God? And I've always believed there was a God. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I just don't. I don't have enough faith to think that all this happened by some cosmic belch you know, millions of years ago, and here we are with all these detail and intricate, I don't, there's got to be a master designer. I've always believed there was a God. So I had to ask the question, do I believe there's a God, and can God do anything? You see, if he cannot do anything, then he's not God. So I believe in the virgin birth, because he's God and I'm not. I believe he was here 100% God, yet 100% man, because he's God and I'm not. And he can do anything. And here's the deal. I found out there's more intellectual evidence of Jesus than anything ever happened on the planet. But there are a couple of components we must accept by faith. The virgin birth. 100% God, 100% man. But by the way, what better way could God prove to us that he gets us than to become us? For 33 years, the Bible says, and always like we are tempted, he was tempted. He knows it when you cry. He knows it when you mess up. He didn't give in and sin, but he was tempted. He knows how hard it is, and he is for you. And so he walked on this earth 33 years. He died on a cross, and on the third day later, he rose from the dead, and he did that so our sin debt could be canceled, forgiven, paid in full, if any man, woman, boy, or girl will come before him and say, I surrender. Not just doing a religious hoop, not just being baptized or sprinkled or confirmed, or I'm not knocking any of that. But I'm saying it's never a religious thing, it's always a Jesus thing. It's coming to him and saying, I repent of my sin, but I understand something about me, I'm still not going to be perfect. And I don't trust my strength to get me to heaven anymore. I trust your strength to get me to heaven. See, it's any one of us coming before God and simply doing this. I'm a sinner. You might do this on the knees of your heart even right now. I'm stuck. I'll never be able to get to God. I can't go to you, God. I need to be rescued. And I believe that you sent the rescuer, your son Jesus. Jesus, I believe you died on a cross for me. And I believe you rose from the dead on the third day. You're God, you can do anything. Because you're God and you can do anything, I believe you can forgive me of everything. You're God. So right now, I, I want to ask you not just to be the God of a pastor or a priest or a church or my great aunt. I want you from this moment on to be my God.
This is you and me one-on-one. Whenever we do that, whenever we trust Jesus' death, his resurrection, he gives us a home in heaven. You want to talk about ashes to beauty. You want to talk about mourning to dancing. You want to talk about shame. Shame to glory. He'll take all your shame, and I had so much. He is that good. And my question for you is this, twofold. If you're here and you say, I've already done that. I know I started an authentic relationship with God. I wonder if we'll make a renewed commitment today to worship. And worship doesn't just happen whenever the music starts and the music ends. That's a powerful venue, and I thank God for that. But worship is everything we do. We full-on worship Him on the good days. A friend of mine says you cannot, whenever a storm comes, you cannot go out and buy yourself a 20-year walk with God. It doesn't happen that way. We need to walk with God while it's good and while it's bad. But I wonder if we'll make a renewed commitment to that. And then last, I wonder if you'd say, I'm not 100% sure if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. I wonder if you'd embrace that simple relationship with Christ today today.